News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about what happened at the Cullen Commission this week. This, of course, is the investigation into money laundering in our province. And there were some more, let's just say, eyebrow-raising headlines from the inquiry. Joining us now is Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what is the deal, Sam, with these apparently taped conversations with Cash Heed? What is going on there? This is a very explosive, very sensitive, and uh, very contentious. So what we heard this week was uh, Fred Pinnock was cross-examined by Cash Heed's lawyer. We had already had indications that Mr. Pinnock had acknowledged that he had secretly recorded Cash Heed in 2018 a number of times. And uh, we have heard that Mr. Pinnock wanted to uh, test whether, you know, the conversation he says he had with Mr. Heat in 2009 was accurate. And just to quickly uh, review that evidence, uh, it's claimed that uh, Mr. Pinnock was told then Minister Responsible Rich Coleman, responsible for gaming in B.C., was somehow turning a blind eye to uh, alleged uh, criminal activities and money laundering in the casinos. A huge allegation. Uh, We know that Mr. Coleman says he's going to speak to it later in the hearing, and he has denied any wrongdoing. So these tapes, uh, we now know there are three tape recordings that have been made in 2018. Mr. Heed says he had no idea he was being taped, and uh, Mr. Pinnock agrees. But what's in those tapes? What we know so far, we heard that... uh, Mr. Heed complained to Mr. Pinnock that Peter German, uh, the former high-ranking Mountie who did the dirty money report, mm-hmm. Mr. Heed complained to the Attorney General David Eby, essentially saying, why did you put uh, Peter German in charge of that report? He was in power when this illegal gaming unit that we're talking about was uh, was cancelled by BC's government and uh, essentially the RCMP. So that is really the, the core of uh, the allegations we're, we're aware of so far on those secret tapes. And, uh, of course, really explosive allegations we understand Mr. Heed made, uh, talking about high-ranking Mounties that may have somehow been complicit in in turning a blind eye to dirty money. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about these tapes. I know, uh, we, we understand that there there's a lot of legal wrangling behind the scenes about these tapes. So will we ever hear them, do you think? What we know right now is that uh, Commissioner Cullen is... is uh, looking at the the evidence value, whether these tapes uh, are are pertinent to the mandate of this inquiry, right. which is whether corruption allowed money laundering to occurring in casinos. So, if those allocations were true, uh, anyone could see that they would be pertinent. But the, yeah. the real legal issue here is this is a one side secret tape recording. Uh, it's a private conversation between uh, two former police officers. So I, I, I'm sure that a judge would look at that and say, well, you know, can we really accept that as evidence? One person who we, we don't know may have yeah. had an axe to grind with the Mounties as well. I'm sure that uh, I, 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 under, I, I can only assume that the RCMP and Canada's government may, may make arguments to that effect. What else stuck out for you this week, Sam? that you learned at the Cullen Commission? 
Well, to be honest, to, to me, it's all about these recordings, because let me just say again, we can only imagine, you know, the explosiveness of the allegations made. They go right to the core of the hearings and whether they can be accepted as evidence. It's just huge. I can't say that enough. What we've heard uh, otherwise is we've heard uh, a number of lawyers from the BC Law Society and the Federation of Canadian Lawyers discussing really uh, in, in, in short terms why Canadian lawyers are not uh, mandated or uh, to, resp- to report suspicious transactions to FinTrack, Canada's anti-money laundering agency. That puts uh, Canadian lawyers in a very unique position where uh, they could be uh, the, the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. really, of a, a huge amount of money from offshore coming into Canada. And uh, the argument for people that, that say, you know, why do lawyers, we, we know lawyers are very uh, intelligent and, and knowledgeable people. But why should they be so special that they don't have to report uh, criminal activity? And really, that's the nub of the issue. Uh, We know that uh, some people will argue that lawyers have been used and abused in money laundering through, uh, you know, shell companies, trusts. And so far, what we've heard from the lawyers is... uh, uh, we are aware that uh, we're vulnerable, and that's why, as a law society uh, in BC, we we take money laundering so seriously, and we can police ourselves. Uh, when are we, do you think, Sam, going to hear from people like Rich Coleman or um, you know Cash Heed? Because in the end, these are the people who were in charge, right? And their name keeps coming up in all of this different stuff. And I think that for the general public, they're like, I want to hear from those people. Well, absolutely. The general public, uh, the reporters, uh, the radio hosts. Yeah. We, the reason we have this inquiry really is because, let me, be, let me be blunt, Peter German's report did not name names and it said casinos were unwitting victims of money laundering. We've already heard the evidence alleging that that's just not the case. Exactly. I'm sorry. There were, there's people that knew. So what, what, let me explain. We've heard uh, about two to three weeks of direct evidence that is really getting to the heart of the matter. Names are being named. Uh, now we, we've gone back to sort of a panel phase where the lawyers, the academics uh, will talk about the systematic issues and whether laws can be changed, because that is very important. I think we'll hear from uh, uh, the, uh, the people whose names we've, we've been told of. Mr. Coleman says he'll, he'll talk in the spring. Mr. Heed, we've already heard from his lawyer. And uh, I, would, I don't know for sure, but I would think, you know, if not before Christmas, very early in the new year, we'll be back to that direct evidence that people really want to hear from the people that were in power. Oh, we certainly do. All right, Sam, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist covering the Cullen Commission investigation into money laundering. So many questions still, right? It just seems like the more we hear, the more we want to know. And as Sam pointed out, it is very apparent, I think, to all of us now that even the Peter German reports, which at the time told us a lot, have not, in hindsight, told us nearly enough into who knew what. And we are slowly starting to get that information now. So we will, of course, continue to check in with Sam about what is going on at the Cullen Commission. This is Mornings with Simi. I love this next question that we're going to tackle with the help of our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Sarah. If you were trapped on a desert island and you could only bring one food with you, what would it be? I've thought about this ever since I knew we were going to be talking about it. And I couldn't, I can't, my first instinct was to say macaroni and cheese because I could eat that all the time. But then I thought, Mm. 
do you really want to eat macaroni and cheese every day, day in and day out? So now I'm st- I think I do. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. That's my answer. Ah, uh, that's tough. In the heat on a, on a tropical island oh. where you're stranded. Ooh. Tough one. Okay. But I hope they have oh. a refrigerator there because the macaroni won't keep well. Well, neither, if I said sushi, which would be my other choice, that's not going to keep well in the hot <laughs> weather either, you know? Now, we're bringing this up because a new survey called the Canadian Cheese Obsession Index, and obviously we can't take this too seriously. We're just going to have a little bit of fun with it. <laughs> it was conducted by Italy's Parmigiano Reggiano Consortium. And it shows that Canadians, of course, love our cheese. I mean, no big surprise that a survey done by Big Cheese would find that we love our cheese. <laughs> cheese. But in the first half of 2020, and this actually is really interesting, sales of Parmigiano Reggiano grew in Canada by a hundred and fifty three percent. I believe it. Just in the first half of this year. I believe it because well, we're doing so much cooking it's interesting. at home. And I think people are looking for comfort foods as well. You're looking for foods that maybe are higher in sugars or higher in fats. And I had a chance to speak to Andrea Rubowski. He is the press officer for Parmigiano Reggiano Consortium. And I spoke to him actually in, he was in Italy. And I asked him if sales are up because people are, are seeking those comfort foods because of the pandemic. The psychological approach to food changed the habits of many people around the world, included Canada. So products with a long heritage, a long history, and with a specific denomination of origin provide more comfort, more security, a feeling of well-being. I'm just going to say, Nikki, I can listen to him talk all day. I loved doing that interview. I love, I love the, <laughs> yeah. the rhythm. The of musical accent. <laughs> accent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he was a really nice guy. You know, we, we talked about some other fun aspects of the survey, including, you know, how cheese may affect your love life. This was another question they asked. They found that your love of cheese may be a deal breaker for your partner. They asked the question, would you break up with someone with or would you break up with someone who, you know, doesn't eat cheese? And 11% of people said, yes. What? I might be in that category. I really like cheese. <laughs> uh, a partner who eats cheese in bed. This was a deal breaker for 10% of the population. Well, who eats cheese in bed? I, I think I might be in that category because I'm like, who, who eats cheese in bed? Is that a good idea? I don't think so. I guess it depends on the circumstances. Uh, a partner, a partner who likes strong smelling or strong tasting cheeses. That's nine uh, percent of the population said no. Uh, that's a deal breaker for me. Oh, some of those are the best cheeses, actually. Those strong smelling, strong tasting cheeses. Oof, I know. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, the survey question that we're joking about here today. If you could take one food with you to a desert island, what would it be? Andrea explained what the results were. So the first one that Canadians uh, chose was actually cheese. 60% of Canadians would pick a a piece of cheese uh, if they uh, should go to a desert island. And this result was uh, very surprising also for us because the other option were actually some of the favorite foods uh, overall. So, for example, bread came into second uh, position, uh, pasta in third, uh, pizza in fourth, and even burgers was behind cheese. So this was extremely interesting for us. No kidding, but all of those things need cheese to make them taste great. Mm. 
See, this is it. Like when I eat pasta, I smother it in cheese. So if you ask me, you know, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, pasta would probably be really high up there for me because I, I love, I cheese. love pasta. I love <laughs> pizza. Cheese. cheese, yeah, cheese, cheese, cheese. We, the cheese is the theme for all. Of yeah, these burgers. Things. Well, you got to have cheese. Most people, I think, put cheese on their burger. Ah, uh, yes, very true, very Th- true. There you go. Yeah. You eat cheese in bed, don't you, Nikki? I came to that conclusion after hearing your answer. I've I've eaten mac and cheese in bed. I eat cheese <laughs> in bed. I eat most of my meals in bed since the pandemic started. To be honest, <laughs> you know what? To me. Truth be told, you're probably not alone on that. Uh, so you, so yours yeah, would you would agree? You would take that would be your desert island food, cheese. Yeah, because I would have said pasta or pizza, but oh. ultimately we can link both of those things back to cheese. Huh. So, like cheese and crackers, let's say. I would probably bring. Uh, now I'm sold. You know what? I'm sold on that too. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Sweeping new restrictions are coming into force starting today and until December 7th. The entire province is being told not to meet with anyone outside their household. All community events are suspended. Enforcement of public health orders is being stepped up. And the province's top doctor is urging people to stop non-essential travel. It's Global Nationals Donna Friesen there talking about the changes that were announced yesterday here in B.C. Now, we know for the tourism industry, it's already been just an awful year. They had a very difficult summer. And I know they were thinking, okay, well, maybe with the ski season, they might be able to get more locals to, you know, come and help out the tourism industry. And of course, those new health restrictions yesterday from Dr. Bonnie Henry means that's really not going to happen. Makes things quite complicated, doesn't it? Joining us now is Vivek Sharma, Vice Chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Vivek, thank you for being back with us. Thanks, Amy. I wish uh, we were we were talking about better things, but here we are. So true. I wish we were talking about better things too. Uh, were was there was were things looking a little bit hopeful for the winter in terms of the ski season up until yesterday, Vivek? Well, I mean, you know, hope is eternal. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't say that you know things were looking better, but we all hope that you know uh, one day after the other, things keep getting better. But we need to remember that you know we were coming through a very, very, very tough eight months you know the industry is on the brinks of collapse so um, I, I can't even begin to fathom what uh, the next right. uh, few weeks or month will look like so what do you mean what are you hearing from like different hotels and from people in the industry well i mean i think the, the first thing that i want to emphasize is that you know as an industry uh, you know health and safety of our staff guests communities you know that's that's of paramount importance, you know, even before COVID, we would always be extremely cautious about that. Uh, the frustration that, you know, we are hearing is the uh, the fact that travel really has not been the culprit. You know, the, the spike in cases that we have seen over the past few weeks, they have not been attributed to travel. So, uh, you know, we are hoping that there is slightly better communication and clearer communication as to what we are trying to achieve by imposing travel restrictions if that is not the culprit. Right. I guess the problem there, Vivek, is that they just want people to slow down everything that they're doing right now, right? Like, give people a little bit, and they're uh, clearly they might socialize too much. Sure, but, you know, we need to remember that our industry uh, over the past eight months has done an exceptional job in, you know, investing in infrastructure towards, you know, uh, adapting to the COVID concerns, spent 
thousands and thousands of hours and hundreds and thousands of dollars in investing towards that, towards training and actual physical infrastructure. And now to get back to punishing us is, is a little bit harsh, you know. I'm sure it feels that way. So what, what are they looking towards now? Are you thinking spring might be better? Like how can the industry plan for that? Well, I think what we want to urge the government is that, you know, let's start getting a little bit innovative, you know, at, at the provincial level, you know, at the government level, where uh, understand, have we invested in rapid testing? Have we, uh, you know, invested in better apps that help in contact tracing, uh, you know, so, so that we don't need to go to these kind of extreme measures? Knowing the fact that, you know, travel has not been the culprit, what, what can we do uh, to mitigate this? The challenge is this is all about human behavior. You know, the, the spread is happening through social gatherings in people's homes um, and, and so on and so forth. So how, how do we mitigate that? Putting a curb on travel is not yeah. going to do that. You sound frustrated with how this has gone. I'm not frustrated. I'm just voicing the concerns of the industry, you know, uh, that... Uh, after everything that, you know, we were asked to do, we did. And, you know, we keep uh, trying to do better uh, and, and keep putting our best foot forward. Um, and uh, it, it somehow looks like, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough. What about getting more support? What would the industry like to see from different levels of government on that? You know, I mean, the, the support, obviously, the, the request remains the same in terms of, you know, help businesses towards liquidity so that they can get to the other side of spring, you know, and, and look at spring. Um, even before these new restrictions were coming in, uh, we knew that, uh, you know, a lot of the businesses were, were teetering on the brink. The one thing that I do want to emphasize when we talk about support is that, you know, collaboratively, you know, the, the government and the industry, uh, you know, we need to start looking at our, our reopening plans, our communication as to how we will communicate that. Because with all this, you know, the, the, the hope that we have towards a vaccine and what that's going to do, there's been still no discussion around any of those things as to even if it, it is a day later or a month later or a year later, there's been absolutely no discussions around those, you know. So those are the also the kind of things that, you know, will support us in, in making sure that we get to the other side. How do you think there are a lot of businesses at this point that can hang in there to get to the other side? Well, I'll say there are a lot of businesses which may not be able to hang in there to get to the other side. The, the, they are at the end of the runway uh, and, you know, like barely hanging in there by their fingernails. So is that, do you think, Vivek, going to shake out perhaps over the next few months? Is there enough government support for them? You know, the, the, the task force that was appointed by, by the government is, is working hard in, in making sure that, uh, you know, that, that aid can be distributed as fast as we can. Um, it has uh, till the end of December to, to give in its report. So and, and the hope would be that once that is in, the, the government will start acting um, on, on, you know, distributing that aid. Okay, Vivek, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're very welcome, Simi. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. It is our expectation that everybody in BC right now will limit their travel as much as possible unless it is essential. There was so much new information from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, like what she said right there, a warning to people thinking about traveling within the province. 
Not great news for the resort communities out there that are doing their best to just get through this. Joining us now is the Mayor of Whistler, Jack Crompton, to talk about that. Thanks so much for being here this morning. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Timmy. You must have been quite disappointed to hear that yesterday. Um, you know, this has been a long, long slog and it's been tough for everyone. And so I think that um, my mind anyway was turned to being prepared for uh, whatever we're asked to do as a community. And the focus for our resort and community is to get open and stay open this winter. So we want to do whatever we can to see that happen. And how has Whistler been coping over the last six months? Uh, I mean, I guess any mayor who gets on your show is going to say the same thing, but I live in the greatest community in the world with the greatest people in the world, and I've been so impressed with uh, how our businesses have, have risen to the challenge, how we have changed almost everything about the way we do tourism and welcome people, and we've learned how to do hospitality from behind a mask, share warmth from behind plexiglass, and um, I've just been really impressed with our community, and, and it's, a, it's a time we'll all look back on and remember the changes that we made and how we really pulled together while we stayed apart. How did the kind of summer season go for Whistler, which is normally very, very busy? And I know quite a few people still, you know, around the province did go to Whistler for a few days. So how did businesses manage? Uh, at the beginning of March, or sorry, when, when this all started, we, we very quickly started to turn our minds to how do you do tourism in this new way? And so it's really what's animated the decisions that we've made and how we've approached things. And so, um, people came to our town and, um, used the town in different ways than they had before. And so we had different pressures and we had to be nimble um, and we had to focus all of our attention on providing a safe experience because if we can't provide a safe experience, we can't stay open. And that's really the critical feature here is to do everything in our power to ensure that the experience is a safe and hospitable one um, so that we can keep doing it uh, as long as possible. And how close are you to having ski season to kick off? The opening day is November 26th, and it has been snowing like crazy. One of the members of our council, a guy named Arthur Jong, has been the lead mountain planner for Whistler Blackcomb for a long time. He's been there, I think, 40 years in total. Um, and Arthur's a bit of a citizen science, uh, climate scientist, so when he isn't building ski lifts or voting on motions at the council table, he just sends NOAA reports to all of us about what's happening in the climate. And it's a La Nina year, mm-hmm. I can say. And uh, it is cold with snow. So there's lots of snow up there. And uh, I feel like our community is ready. We've, we've, we've done the work to ensure safe experiences. If you go into a restaurant now, it's, it's, you'll, you'll, I, I feel safe. Same with the hotels. I feel like our, our, our community and our businesses have really risen to the challenge and are ready. Right. But yet we heard Dr. Henry say yesterday that, do you, ask, do you really need to go to Whistler, though? That must have been quite disappointing. This whole thing has been a huge challenge. And so, um, you know, for me, I've, from the beginning, I've been really encouraging our community to listen to her very carefully and, and do as she asks. And um, so that is our plan now as well. 
Okay, so then moving forward, is it, what are the plans? Like if somebody does go skiing there, what's it going to look like on the mountain? Um, I think the, the it's the basics. It's ensuring that you don't socialize on the hill, that you get in your har- car with just your household, you drive to the hill, you ski, you come home, you don't stop at your friend's house on the way there or the way back. Um, and skiing is one of those things that you can do in a safe manner, as Dr. Henry's been saying since the beginning. It's, it's an outside activity and there's lots of space. And so um, I think that it will be, you know, doing those things that we've all learned to do as a part of this process and ensuring that you're doing them well. Okay, so then for Whistler for the next couple of months, what is your message to people out there, Mayor Crompton? What's my message? Uh, my message is please do everything in your power to uh, be a part of ensuring that uh, we lower uh, and flatten this curve and that you lower the um, likelihood that you are a spreader of the virus. Uh, I think for me, um, I, I, don't, I don't want to have to wait for government to tell me that I should um, you know, lower my social circle, only spend time with my household, wash my hands, don't touch my face. I've heard these things before. It's time for me to take action. It's urgent. We must do it. Our economy depends on it. Our health depends on it. Um, this is not a, a time to, to sort of play around the edges. Let's take the actions that we need to and be serious about them so that we can stay open all season and enjoy what I think is going to be a great ski season. All right, Mayor Crompton, thank you for your time today. It is a pleasure. I I love being on with you. All right, great to have you. That's Jack Crompton, the Mayor of Whistler, uh, certainly staying very optimistic. That's good. And understanding that people have to do more to stay safe. And they feel that if people do that, then yeah, maybe you'd be able to go skiing at some point this ski season. We'll see what happens there. You heard great snow. They expect a La Nina year. That doesn't mean you can rush up to the up to Whistler, though, and go skiing, at least not right now, not for the next couple of weeks. And of course, we'll see how it goes. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about holiday spending. You may not be gathering with family this Christmas, but you might still be, you know, buying in presents and perhaps dropping them off or having them delivered. But are you spending more or less this year? Well, Lisa Colangelo is a senior vice president of retail banking at Coast Capital Savings. She had a chance to speak to our Nikki Reitmeyer about what spending trends have been revealed in a new survey. And of course, that age old question, how can you stay on budget during the holiday season? We're expecting some different trends for holiday shopping this year, aren't we? We certainly are. And Coast Capital recently uh, conducted a poll to find out more from British Columbians on what they're planning to do in terms of holiday spending this holiday season. And what were the findings of that study? I imagine that they were people are going to be a little bit more conservative with their money this year. Yeah, Nikki, that was exactly what we found, is the findings suggested that most people on average plan to spend 25% or $300 less than they did last year. In fact, it was 85% of British Columbians who told us that they would spend less this year. And is that because people aren't going to be traveling as much? They're not going to be going out for those you know, social drinks as much during the holiday season? Yeah, we definitely heard the ongoing limitations on travel and large gatherings means that about 54% of the respondents will spend less this holiday season and 47% will spend less on travel. 
But what about when it comes to gift giving? Because I've heard some experts say that they anticipate that parents are going to be buying more presents this year for their kids, trying to make this a special year, maybe make it feel a bit more normal. Yeah, you know, Nikki, and that was one of the surprising things that we actually heard from those who were uh, who participated in the poll. We actually heard that 25% of our respondents indicated that they are going to spend more this holiday season. And it was exactly for that, either spending a bit more on a bit of more of a a glamorous gift to brighten up the holidays or even contributing more to their local community. Interesting. So after everything that's happened this year, it's been a bit of a miserable year. After everything that's happened, people are feeling a bit more charitable. Yeah, in some situations, definitely. And, you know, I would say that, you know, at Coast Capital, we certainly want everybody to feel like they want to, you know, have a very festive uh, holiday season this year, but also balance that with making sure that you have a plan, a financial plan heading into the holiday season. Yeah, that's a really great point. I imagine that this is the time of year when you guys are used to seeing people rack up their credit cards and make some poor financial choices. So what kind of advice do you have for someone heading into the holiday season, some practical advice that they can use? Yeah, thank you for that question. At Coast Capital, you know, we completely understand that the holidays are going to feel and look a bit different than they have in previous years. So we really want to help to navigate the balance between having an amazing holiday season with friends and family, but keeping you on a budget. So our recommendation would be is, you know, make sure that going into the holiday season that you take the time to sit down with a financial advisor or a Coast Capital representative to really talk through, you know, your plan heading into the heading into the holiday season. Right. Making sure you have a budget and sticking to it. That's exactly it. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Nikki. It's been a great chat. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's get right to it. We are joined now by Health Minister Adrian Dix to talk more about the new restrictions that were announced yesterday, including that mandatory mask order, what it means. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for being here. Hey, great to be on the show, Simi. Uh, What changed for you? When when did you realize that we're going to need to do more? We're going to need to crack down here. Well, um, these measures uh, are, first of all, an extension of the measures that were taken November 7th and October 24th on gatherings. And we need less social interaction right now. Uh, COVID-19 everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere is affecting people differently this November and December. It's acting different. And we knew this. We, we suspected this would happen. We talked about it a long time ago. And we've taken some steps that have made it better. For example, a lot Hundreds of thousands more people got flu shots and so on. But we knew COVID-19 would be bad in November and December. And it has been, I think, worse than expected everywhere. So that means less social interaction is necessary. And so that means the extension of the orders in two ways that were made November 7th. One, that they be extended through to December 7th. Two, that they be extended to the entire province because we're seeing growth in cases in the other three health authorities in the interior of the North and Vancouver Island. And, of course, some new measures um, that, especially on social gatherings. So, for example, uh, the social gatherings you'd be able to go to that had 50 people at them. Well, no community social gatherings right now. And that affects, obviously, uh, services at church, at temple, at synagogue, and gurdwaras, and so on. But all of those right now need to happen virtually. So those are significant changes. And then there's the workplace changes, including uh, the changes around masks which is taking the guidance, and I've heard Dr. Henry say about 89,000 times 
that people should um, wear masks in indoor public spaces, that that was the guidance. I've said it mm-hmm. maybe less than 89,000 times, but almost that many. And now um, what a, a lot of people who worked in retail especially said it would really help us if you made it into an order. So that's what's happened yesterday. It'll be made into an order uh, by the Solicitor General. Right. And, uh, and uh, we're hoping that will assist people. Will, will there be enforcement of that, though? Yes. In what way? Well, I, what we're hoping, first of all, is that uh, people are doing what I see them doing whenever I go to the grocery store, which is increasingly, as the days have gone on during this fall, increasingly wearing masks. So I think people uh, in in BC generally, when they get advice like that, when people understand that they need to do it, and they do it, and when they know it's a rule, they do it for sure. There may be cases where people choose not to do it, and there will be enforcement in those circumstances. But it's our uh, expectation that uh, people in indoor public spaces will wear masks. And that means not at your desk when you're working, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it means um, in, the, in the common areas, in places like elevators and stairwells and common rooms, except when you're eating, of course. And so you have to make allowances for that in places such as restaurants where they're obviously wearing a mask and Eating in a restaurant or not, you know, you have to right. you have to take them off to eat and so on. And so these are practical ways to deal with the situation. But I, I want to emphasize: there's a lot of talk about masks, but the issue of not going to work sick, of regular employer health checks with everyone who works in the business, mm-hmm. the issue of washing our hands and and all of the other provisions, coughing into our sleeves, these things. It is their layers of protection, and above all, physical distancing, their layers of protection. We don't need to do some of them. It's not masks and not anything else. It's all of those things right. and masks. Let me ask you as well, you talked about you know employee checks and all of that. What about long-term care? We clearly have a problem there, quite a few outbreaks. Why not do what BC care providers and others have suggested and is test staff more? We do it for the film industry. Why can't we do more for long-term care? Well... Um, we've done a lot in long-term care. Uh, and BC, of course, uh, because of the work we've done together as a team in BC, uh, we have a more effective record. But still, there's too many outbreaks, right? There's 60 outbreaks. So we do enormous amount of uh, testing in long-term care right from the beginning. And the issue of testing strategy is one we, um, you know, with, with great respect to uh, uh, people, you know, who are in, in my business, we, we follow the advice of public health officers. And the effort in long-term care is significant. But what this tells us, what's going on in long-term care tells us this, there are 50,000 people working in long-term care. So if we want long-term care to be less effective, we have to stop community transmission because it's impossible to hermetically seal those 50,000 people. The reason that there's more outbreaks in long-term care right now is there's more outbreaks in communities. So we want to keep long-term care safe. We want to keep hospitals open. We did a record number of surgeries between November 2nd and 8th. We want to keep doing that. We want to ensure that our children go to school. Then we have to take these measures, follow these measures by Dr. Henry to reduce transmission in the community because that's how uh, we reduce transmission in places such as long-term care, including all the other steps we've taken. So just as an example, we've hired, you know, since the Premier made the announcement on the 7,000 workers, 1,000 people in infection control and to support visits in long-term care. And we're going to hire 7,000. And it's going to be a huge effort to do so that we've put in the single site order that, you know, 
the infection control measures. And that's mm-hmm. why BC has a better record than anybody else. But just because we have a better record than anybody else doesn't mean we haven't suffered terrible losses and the 54, uh, 50 plus outbreaks in long-term care we're right. seeing right now are part of that. And no subject uh, troubles, preoccupies. We work on harder than that one. And what about the flu shot supply on this as well? Is that going to be improving? I know I had a couple of elderly neighbors over the age of 80 really upset because they can't seem to get a flu shot. And I called around to a number of pharmacies and they all told me the same thing, that supply is really running low. Well, um, so last year, uh, at this time last year, we had 1.3 million doses out. This time this year, we have 1.9 million doses out. So that's 600,000 more than last year. Right. We've done and completed about 500,000 more flu shots. So people are getting the flu shot. 240,000 more flu shots delivered by pharmacists as of November 11th compared to last year already, right? Yeah. And uh, more than 100,000 more in doctor's offices than last year already. So they're happening out there and we're buying more. So we uh, increased the number of flu shots, doses we got by half a million, and we're buying 250,000 more. And uh, there are ways to get flu shots. I know that the individual distribution, individual pharmacies in some cases is a problem. And these are, these are issues in a system as big as ours. But people are getting the flu shot. They're able to get it. I encourage them to get it. And it's helping. We're seeing right now relatively little flu. That's partly because of all the physical mm. distancing and other measures we're doing. They help with the flu, right? But also because lots more people are getting the flu shot, hundreds of thousands of people more in our province. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we ordered them, we, mm-hmm. we made those orders in May, right? We decided right. we're going to need a lot more in May. And so I'm pretty gratified. When you kind of write a check for 500,000 more shots, you're happy when people take them up. They certainly did. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time today and for joining us. Hey, take care, Simi, anytime. You too. That's Adrian Dix, Provincial Health Minister, talking about the latest rules and orders and the situation involving COVID-19. Of course, uh, we will always have him back on to answer more of those types of questions because I know a lot of you are coping with this as well.